Welcome to this episode of the Catechesis uh, class from Christ Church Waco. I'm Father Lee Nelson, and it's good to have you with us this morning or this afternoon, uh, depending on where you are. Uh, let's begin with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Look upon the heartfelt desires of your humble servants, and stretch forth the strong hand of your majesty to be our defense against our enemies. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen. Well, today we begin with that wonderful prayer for spiritual provision and protection. Uh, this is on page 90 in the Catechism. We're beginning a new section on the Ten Commandments, uh, and that is the third pillar of uh, catechesis. In traditional catechesis, you have three pillars. There are the, Lord, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Through the, Lord, through the Apostles' Creed, uh, we teach the basics of the faith um, in terms of what we proclaim and the faith that we proclaim in the Lord's Prayer, we teach people how to pray. And then in the uh, Ten Commandments section, we teach people how to live. This prayer that we prayed earlier uh, is, Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is a direct line out of St. Augustine, who speaks of this heart being restless until uh, we rest in God. Um, this is a really important way to start off this uh, section on the Ten Commandments. Um, we are often um, uh, torn apart by awful and truly destructive desires. We desire things too much. We desire good things too little. Uh, we, are, we are torn apart by it. And the Christian uh, faith has taught that the best thing for us to do is to center all of our desires upon Jesus Christ uh, and upon the God of our salvation, uh, that we may uh, rest in God, finding ourselves uh, no longer restless, uh, but reaching rest. One of the commandments is uh, to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Uh, and this is an amazing thing, that God wants us to rest. He wants us to take rest, not just a rest from labor, but a rest from desire, a rest from uh, all manner of work. Um, so we're going to begin this section on the Ten Commandments today. Uh, one of the things that I want to uh, say before we get started is simply this, that uh, laws matter. And as Christians, we believe that laws matter. Lawlessness begets more lawlessness. Uh, when people uh, no longer uphold the law, when they, uh, when they uh, let laws fall apart, uh, we become captive to our own desires, and not only our own desires, but the desires of others. We're living in a time where you just flip on the news and you see, uh, you see wild lawlessness. Um, and it's in response to lawlessness from our government um, that this is happening. So lawlessness becomes, begets more, more lawlessness. And for the Christian, the, the first law that, that should be written in our hearts um, is the law to love God and to love our neighbor. Um, and this is simply a summary of all of God's law. And that most clear uh, 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 piece of the law being the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So question 256, this is on page 91. Recite the Ten Commandments. One, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. Two, you shall not make for yourself any idol. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Five, honor your father and your mother. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And ten, you shall not covet. 
These are the Ten Commandments, and they appear in two places in Scripture. The first is in Exodus 20, and the second is in Deuteronomy 5. So if you ever uh, are in a hotel room and you think, gosh, I need, I need to know what the Ten Commandments are, just open up the Bible to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, and there it is. Uh, I would encourage uh, everyone to memorize the Ten Commandments. Uh, Christians have memorized the Ten Commandments for a long, long time. It's not a new thing. Uh, we should absolutely know what the Ten Commandments are. I've always been uh, deeply disappointed to be, uh, as a priest, um, and often serving on the Board of Examining Chaplains for our diocese to find that a lot of people who've been to seminary for three years don't know what the Ten Commandments are. They can't name them uh, at all. Um, they can name maybe a two or three or four, but they can't name all of them. And I really think this is an essential part of catechesis, to memorize not only the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer, but also to memorize the Ten Commandments. So let's just ask, well, what are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are a summary and outline of God's law. In scriptures, particularly in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments are given first, and we're going to talk more about that in a bit, but they're given first as a summary of what will come later in the law. So throughout the end of Exodus and in Deuteronomy, the law is given um, in a wide variety of ways, also in Leviticus, I should note, um, and, and it's given uh, uh, with more clarity but it is always simply a further exploration of what the basic commandments are. So the Ten Commandments are a summary, an outline of God's law. Question 258, what is God's law? God's law, Hebrew Torah for instruction, is God's direct pronouncement of his will, both for our good and for his glory. The first five books of the Bible are called in Hebrew the Torah, uh, which simply means instruction. And uh, in, a, in a very real way, the first five books of the Bible for a Jew are their catechism. Um, all of the teaching that goes on in those first five books of the Bible, and you'll note if you start reading with Genesis, you get all of this history. So you start with, uh, with uh, the, the, the creation and, uh, and what happens in Eden. Uh, but for a Jew, and I think this is really important to, to, to keep in mind, for a Jew, the, the Torah and all the books surrounding it are an introduction, uh, some might say even a preface to the law. The law is at the heart of these, those first five books of the Bible. Um, anything that you might read about creation or Eden or Abraham or Moses um, is all an introduction which gets you to the pinnacle of those texts, uh, which is the law. Um, and it is the whole of those five books that is called the law in, uh, in Jewish understanding. And it's a direct pronouncement of God's will. When God takes his people out of Egypt and he wants to uh, make of them a nation, when God takes his people out of Egypt and he wants them to live uh, in peace and in the goodness of the land that he's bringing them to, he gives them a law. The understanding of scripture is that a people can't really be a people without a law. A nation can't be a nation without a law. And I would say, uh, maybe you can take this whatever way you want, but when a nation, uh, when the rule of law collapses in a nation, um, you, you can call that very clearly a failed state uh, because laws define a nation. Um, they tell people what is good. They tell people how that nation will be ruled. And when that rule of law falls apart, we become captive not only to our own desires, but the desires of others. And we become very truly less free 
Now, there's much more that needs to be said about that, especially when we are, are speaking as Christians about the gospel and what part does the law play in the gospel. Um, but we should still say that when the law falls apart and when lawlessness is defined, uh, when, the, when the nation is defined by, by lawlessness and we are, when we ourselves are defined by lawlessness, this is actually, to say it clearly, the very definition of sin. Question 259. When did God give his law? After delivering his people Israel from slavery in Egypt, God established a covenant with them by giving them his law through Moses. Um, immediately after the people are brought out of slavery in Egypt, God gives them this covenant. Um, and, and God's part of the covenant is to give the people a law. And he gives this through Moses. Now, we've spoken a bit in the past about what a covenant is. And the best definition that I've ever heard for a covenant is simply this. It's an exchange of persons. And what I mean by that is that um, in a good covenant, um, the, the, the dividing lines between two people or two persons fall down. Um, a great example would be in the ancient world, um, let's say that, uh, that I have uh, good grazing land in the winter and my neighbor who's, who's down in the valley has great grazing land in the summer. And we get together one night, and we're drinking a beer, and, and he says to me, hey, man, you know, I'm really sick of this. I, I, I run my flocks uh, in, in the summer, and everything's great, and we hit winter, and it's really hard, and it doesn't work, and they go hungry, and I get frustrated, and it doesn't work. And you tell me, he says, uh, you know, you have a great grazing, you have good grazing in the winter, and then in the summer, everything goes to pot. Why don't you and I make a covenant and my land will become your land and your land will become my land and we will have abundance together. We'll have it. We'll have everything we could want. Um, and, and not only that, but the two of us will become uh, like brothers. We'll become uh, uh, those who share in a common possession. Um, in a sense, you'll, I'll become you and you'll become me <laughs> legally. In a, in a sense that we establish this together, this covenant. When we speak about the covenants in Scripture, uh, in the Old Covenant, the understanding is that a God will become God for the people, and the people will be a people of God's own. Um, God recites this over and over again in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Um, this is the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. It's not, you shall have no other gods before me. It's, I am the Lord your God. In fact, when, when the Jewish people give you what the Ten Commandments are, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, full stop. Then the second commandment is, you shall have no other gods but me. And they reorder some of the later things. Uh, but it's simply to say that, uh, that the beginning of the law is, I am the Lord your God. Um, and as a, as, a, as a sort of cognate from that, that the people are saying, we will be your people. So this is, this is a very important thing. And it means that God gives himself to us through the law. When we get to the gospel and we're talking about a new covenant, what happens? Well, look behind me. Jesus Christ gives himself to us. And when you, when you become a Christian, you give yourself to Jesus Christ. You give, him, you give all of yourself over to him. He becomes Lord and you are no longer your own, but you are his. You see what's going on? That's the new covenant uh, whereby God and his people are reconciled uh, through the blood of Jesus uh, for the purpose of making a people who are his own, who are righteous. 
Um, and, and I will say this, when we start off on the Ten Commandments, one of the things that's, that's, that's uh, difficult about the commandments is that uh, can you keep the commandments? No, you can't. Not by your own power. There's no way to keep the commandments by your own power. But we can say and should say that by God's grace, by the gift of God's grace, which transforms our nature, we can become righteous. We can become holy. We're given all the tools, all the gifts that we need in order to keep God's law. Okay, so let's, let's continue on. Um, how did Jesus summarize God's law? Jesus summarized God's law by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all, your, with, your, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Um, so when we get to the New Testament, Jesus does not reject the law. In fact, he says, I came not to, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he gives this great, even a higher summary of the law. And we say this every single Sunday. We say it at every celebration of the Eucharist, this summary of the law. In fact, for much of Anglicanism's history, the Decalogue was said at the beginning of the celebration of the Eucharist. And we, we do this again in Lent. Um, we, we, uh, we recite the commandments. Um, but it is to say that, that, uh, that our worship, even as Christians, is defined by the law. The law tells us how we will love God. The law tells us how we will love our neighbor. Um, let's say just a bit, because this, this uh, version of the catechism doesn't get into it, but a bit about how the law was given on Mount Sinai. One of the things we read in Exodus 20 is that God begins to give the law, and he gives it uh, audibly. So all the people are down in the valley, and God is giving the law up on Mount Sinai, and he gives it audibly, and I remember what the, old cat, what the previous catechism said, audibly and awesomely. So, so the people hear the word of God, uh, and they hear the commandments, and then what happens? Then they say, Moses, you've got to tell God not to speak to us anymore, because we're going to die if he keeps speaking to us. Um, but they do hear uh, the Ten Commandments given audibly. And later you'll remember that the commandments are written by God himself on these tablets of stone. And it is that which is put in the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, is that which, um, which symbolizes and indeed is uh, the presence of God among his people. Again, the covenant, this, this covenant in law is God giving himself uh, to us. Um, and in the sense, you know, the law actually foreshadows the word of God, Jesus Christ being made manifest or incarnate among us. But let's ask this. If Jesus is the word of God incarnate, we might even say the law of God incarnate. Um, how did Jesus fulfill God's law? That's question 261. How did Jesus fulfill God's law? For our sake, Jesus fulfilled God's law by teaching it perfectly, submitting to it wholly, and dying as an atoning sacrifice for our disobedience. So the first thing is, he teaches it perfectly. Um, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' rendering of the law of God um, in, in much more depth, in much more clarity, you get the sense he's giving the law afresh to, his, to this new people. Um, he submits to it wholly. Um, we know from the moment of Jesus' birth and, and, and what happens eight days after he's born, well, he's circumcised, which, which brings him into uh, a relationship with the law. Indeed, this is how the Jewish people submitted to the law was through this act of circumcision among the men. 
but he submits to it. And we see this throughout scripture that Jesus does what the law commands. His parents, for instance, uh, make a sacrifice in the temple uh, 40 days after his birth to fulfill the law. Um, he is often accused by the Pharisees of breaking the law, for instance, healing on the Sabbath day uh, or, or, um, or plucking grains uh, during on the Sabbath day. His disciples do this. But Jesus shows that he is not just the, the, the perfect fulfillment of the law, but he indeed, indeed is the lawgiver. Um, he gives the law to the people. And we can even say that it is the word of God, Jesus Christ, who gives the law to Israel in their days of wandering in the wilderness. Um, furthermore, he dies as an atoning sacrifice, which is commanded under the law for our disobedience. Disobedience demands a sacrifice on behalf of God's people in, because we know that, um, and this is part of the law as well in, 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 uh, in the Torah, that anytime there's lawlessness, a sacrifice has to be made on behalf of the people. And Jesus is that perfect sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice for our sin. Question 262, how can you obey God's law? As I trust in Jesus' fulfillment of the law for me and live in the power of the Holy Spirit, God gives me grace to love and obey his law. So there are two parts to this. The first is that we trust in Jesus' fulfillment of the law on our behalf for me. So part of this is simply to put faith in Jesus uh, and to put our hope in him as the fulfillment of the law. And indeed to also know that... And it's such a great time to talk about this. We've, we've just spent the last uh, 10 days uh, recording not only Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father to pray for us, but also this act of in his risen body ascending to the Father so that he can send us his Holy Spirit to do what? To lead us into all righteousness, to lead us into all truth. Uh, without the Spirit of God, it's impossible to please God, as I believe Paul says. Um, so Jesus has sent us his Holy Spirit um, to what end? Well, it's this last part of the answer. God grants me grace to love and obey his law. Um, the psalmist uh, repeats repeatedly in Psalm 119 the love of the law, to love uh, God's words, to love his commandments. Um, you can read Psalm 119. It's, it's, a, it's a schooling in being a person who loves and obeys the law. Um, but as Christians, we believe strongly that it's impossible to please God without his grace. And so what we say simply is that God gives us his grace so that we can uh, uh, love and obey him. Um, there's a really fundamental misunderstanding today in a lot of, among a lot of Christians, especially in this country, about what grace is. You'll often hear grace simply said, it's unmerited favor. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a covering over my sinful self that God does to sort of accept me and love me and all that. And that might be true. And I think, I think in many ways it is. But classic Christian teaching on grace is that grace is a powerful gift. Indeed, a supernatural gift of supernatural power to us that transforms or elevates our nature. Um, and as uh, Thomas Aquinas puts it, grace um, uh, perfects nature. It draws it to its perfect end. Um, so when we speak about grace as Christians, we speak about uh, God giving us not only just uh, the power, but giving us his very self 
through the Holy Spirit to lead us into righteousness. And this is the most magnificent thing. You know, we, we had five baptisms yesterday, and I, I try to think about as, as I'm baptizing a child or baptizing an adult, you know, what's being poured out upon them is the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like it was poured upon uh, those initial disciples on the day of Pentecost, for living this righteous life. Uh, and that grace of the Holy Spirit continues on throughout life. Uh, that we may uh, live according to God's will, that we may obey him. Um, it doesn't come from us um, in, our, in our imperfect selves. It comes because God has given himself to us. And you can see in that, that's, what the, that's what's at the heart of the new covenant, is, is God giving himself to us without reservation um, because we need him to give himself to us so that we can give, himself, we can give ourselves to him. And this is how that new covenant works and will work for all time. Question 263. Why are you not able to do this perfectly? Sin has corrupted human nature, inclining me to resist God, to ignore his will, and to care more for myself than for my neighbors. However, God has begun and will continue his transforming work in me and will fully conform me to Christ at the end of the age. So two parts to this answer. The first is that we're not able to, to keep the law and obey the law perfectly uh, because we, we have a corrupted nature, a corrupted human nature. Um, I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. Our nature is through the fall bent. Um, it's not obliterated uh, because what happens in redemption is not that we get a new nature, but that our nature is perfected and restored and conformed to the image of Christ, as we'll say later in, the, in this answer. Um, it's put back to right. It's transformed even. Um, but we don't get a new nature. We don't cease to be human in redemption. We are still human. We, we are still ourselves transformed in, this, in, in the work of sanctification and in the work of justification as well. Um, but let's say this, that sin corrupts the human nature and it in fact inclines me to resist God. I love what we say when we recite the Decalogue during Lent. Um, we say, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. This is an appeal to God for grace to incline. So if, if we're, in a sense, declined by sin or if we're inclined to disobedience, then we must have our hearts inclined to keep the law. Um, we, we have, as a, as a matter of this, um, this sin, our hearts are inclined to lawlessness. Um, you know, as, as scripture says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. You know, you, you, you just, you, for whatever reason, you just can't really do it. Um, and, and we're broken, we're bent, we're put out of shape. But what is it that God does? Um, you know, we, just when we care more for ourselves and our neighbors, just when we care more for ourselves and what we want than God, God begins and continues his transforming work in me and will fully conform me to Christ at the end of the age. The Christian is meant to enter into this uh, transformation immediately. Um, Paul writes, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that you may know what the will of God is. So we, 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 uh, we submit to this work of transformation, this work of renewal. I love that word that Paul uses in Greek. It's anakinosis. It means uh, to, be, to be renewed to a higher state. Uh, so we, we do this in advance 
uh, with what you might call expectation, indeed even eschatological expectation, as we look for full conformity uh, to Christ at the end of the age. Um, it is in and through the person of Jesus Christ that we are saved, and it is in and through the person of Jesus Christ that we will ultimately be saved um, when we enter into the perfect vision of God. Um, it is in Christ that we are saved. Um, and it is in his obedience that we are saved. But it is not just enough to say that we're, we're sort of uh, always going to be in this, in this uh, position of having uh, Christ be a stand-in or a substitute for us, but in fact he gives us his righteousness that we may be conformed to his image perfectly. Question 264, how should you understand the Ten Commandments? I should understand them as God's righteous rules for my life and his kingdom, basic standards for loving God and my neighbor. In upholding them, I bear witness with the church to God's righteousness and his will for a just society. This is a wonderful answer. Could not be more appropriate for right now. Uh, but many Christians have started to look upon the law, even in its most basic sense, the Ten Commandments, uh, as, as a, a kind of straitjacket that leads us straight to hell. And, and they, they uh, uh, in a sense, read a, a few chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans uh, to say that when the law is proclaimed, I become worse, not better. Or I become more of a sinner and not better. And this is indeed in Romans chapter 7. Uh, but Paul doesn't stop there. Paul is actually making a sustained argument. And this is why you can never take uh, text of scripture out of context. The sustained argument is that, is that the Christian has been joined to Jesus Christ, that we may no longer live for sin, but live for righteousness. And this righteousness, which uh, we receive in the grace of Jesus, is to live a perfect life, even according to the law. Now, part of the problem comes because the Jewish law has a lot of commandments that we as Christians believe that we're no longer bound from. These are, are um, uh, you might call uh, purity laws. Um, you know, we, I'm, I'm wearing right now a wool and polyester blend, so that would be out in the, in the law. Uh, but... but uh, there is something that needs to be said, and that is that in the uh, Acts of the Apostles, Gentiles are allowed to be incorporated into the covenant by simply keeping not a whole huge amount of law, but by keeping, uh, by keeping away from immorality, even in the most basic sense, and that, and that could directly refer to the Ten Commandments. I think we should also say that, um, that uh, when uh, the Jerusalem Council meets in Acts, Acts chapter 16, uh, they put very basic rules about sexual immorality, um, about um, uh, not eating, for instance, meat with blood in it, uh, meaning really bloody meat, uh, but, um, but to uh, observe a very basic code uh, so that, uh, but, but they do not mean to dispense with the Ten Commandments. Uh, so we need to say that there is, a, there is room for Christians to preach and teach morality, and it doesn't damn us to, uh, to receive this teaching. At the same time, we can be cognizant of the fact that that uh, that that um, uh, giving ourselves over to a kind of self-willed reliance on the law as a means to our own sanctification is not the ideal for the Christian. The ideal for the Christian is to know the law, to know God's will, to know His commandments, and receive power from on high to uphold them. Um, so we can say this, that, uh, that we receive these basic standards for loving God and our neighbor, and when we uphold them by God's grace, we bear witness 
with the church to God's righteousness. We don't bear witness to our own righteousness by following the law. We bear witness to the righteousness of Jesus. We bear witness to his will as king for our society. Um, and this is part of the problem that we're, we're seeing live and on TV today, that, that, that lawlessness has gone out the window, or law, lawfulness and the upholding of the law has gone out the window. Um, when we as Christians uh, uh, seek in our own lives to uphold the law, and indeed when we call upon others to uphold the law, even just our laws as a nation, um, we bear witness to God's will um, for a just society. Uh, and this has been a, a, a Christian witness throughout the centuries, uh, not only in, in our own day is it a possibility, but, but it's also been, been clear uh, throughout, throughout Christian history that uh, Christians have given themselves over to uh, this kind of righteous living uh, for the sake of a witness to God's righteousness in the world and, and to a witness to the kingship of Jesus Christ in the world. Um, I'm reminded of how uh, Christians uh, could uh, understand that they were keeping certain Roman laws without any hesitation. I mean, they're saying, yeah, these laws are good. Uh, well, at the same time, kind of kneeling in this way of following a higher law uh, that shows that they are citizens of a higher kingdom. How do the Ten Commandments help you to resist evil? They teach me that God judges the corrupt affections of this fallen world, that the cruel strategies of the devil and the sinful desires of my own heart, and they teach me to renounce them. Um, when a person is baptized in our church, they face liturgically away from the risen Christ in the altar. They face the doors. And in fact, in our church, you face the baptismal font and you face this beautiful stained glass window of Jesus Christ standing at the door and knocking. And you make these renunciations. Um, one of the one of the renunciations is uh, to resist evil, and we're taught through the commandments that God judges the corrupt the corrupt affections of this fallen world and the cruel strategies of the devil and the sinful desires of my own heart, and we are taught through the commandments to renounce them. Without a renunciation of the world, the flesh, and the devil, um, the faith that the faith which which we turn to Jesus Christ is in some way disabled. Um, one cannot uh, turn to the risen Christ in faith and in hope and in love while continuing to fail to renounce uh, sinful desires, continuing to fail to renounce uh, the, the wiles of the devil, um, and continuing to fail to renounce uh, all that the world teaches us is good. So we learn through the commandments how to renounce evil. Um, so the law is not only uh, something that uh, leads us to know our own sinfulness and to turn to Jesus, but the law teaches us how to renounce evil. So that's a, another important part of the law. How do, you, how do the Ten Commandments help you to grow in likeness to Christ? They reveal my sin in the light of God's righteousness. They guide me to Christ and they teach me what is pleasing to God. Um, this is something that uh, Protestant Christians have, have argued endlessly about, and I, I really hope that uh, the, the catechism, in a very Catholic way, uh, can teach what good teaching of the law is like, and, and this is a great example of that. The law, the teaching of the Ten Commandments, um, help us to grow in likeness to Christ because, first, they reveal my sin in the light of God's righteousness, not according to my own standards. You know, if, I, if I'm judging myself and saying, you oh, know, you didn't do that right, and that was wrong, and you know, no, I always go wrong a bit because I'm not, 
I'm judging myself by my own standards, which I tend to go either too lightly or too harshly against myself, sometimes at the same time. Um, but these, the commandments reveal my sin in the light of God's righteousness. They also guide me to Christ. As Paul says, the law is given as a schoolmaster to guide me to Christ. Um, we don't really think of schoolmasters or teachers as guiding people to something beyond themselves. We sort of think like you know, a teacher imparts knowledge or whatever it is. In the, in the ancient world, a teacher was meant to be a guide. Indeed, many progressive schools are calling their teachers guides, right? That's very good. I actually think that's wonderful. Uh, but, but to guide me to the right, to guide me to uh, virtue, to guide me to justice. And, and for Christians, we believe that the law serves in this way to guide me to the perfect end of my human life, which is the image of Jesus. And to teach me what is pleasing to God. The Christian desires to please God uh, because of what God has given to us. And, and we, we can't just simply say, oh, well, if God wants me to be righteous, I'll be righteous. If? No, God wants you to be righteous, okay? He desires this and gives you everything you need in order to do it. Um, and this is why we believe so strongly in the grace of the sacraments. It's why we believe so strongly in the graces that are given to us through a, through a, through a, a thriving life of prayer. So it's important that we say that. Okay, we're just about to wrap up this section before, uh, in future weeks, we'll go into the first commandment, but I just want to finish up this introduction to the Ten Commandments today. Question 267. How should you keep the Ten Commandments? Because they both contain God's prohibitions against evil and direct me towards his goodwill, I should both repent when I disobey them and seek by his grace to live according to them. Um, one of the things that I want to encourage you to do, and we've done this in recent weeks is to simply say that um, that you ought to regularly do what we call as Christians an examination of conscience. It's to look at your knowledge of yourself and say, where have I gone wrong? What have I done wrong? Um, and not use yourself and your own knowledge as, uh, as a yardstick for this, but to use, and I would actually encourage you to do this, just use the Ten Commandments. Look in the catechism and say, where have I failed here? The catechism provides great, uh, a great place for the examination of conscience. Where have I failed? Um, and I would include in that as well uh, simply this, that it is essential, it is essential um, that you not only say, oh, um, I guess I'm a sinner, you know, I haven't done that right, and I haven't done that wrong, I haven't done that right, but to lead us to repentance um, and, and to lead us to seek out God's grace. Um, many people get repentance wrong because they think of repentance as simply turning away from sin. Well, that's half of repentance. I mean, the word that's used in the scriptures for repentance is metanoia, and it actually means to do a 180. And you might say, well, here I am, I'm looking at you, and I'm going towards you, and I can turn away. But what does that give me if I turn away? Indeed, I have to turn all the way around and face Christ. And this is why in uh, the baptismal liturgy, and you saw this yesterday if you were here uh, or watching, uh, the, the baptismal renunciations are given facing liturgical west, and then the affirmations of the faith and the Apostles' Creed are given facing east, facing, uh, liturgically anyway, the, the risen Christ. Um, so, all of that points us to what repentance is and how repentance actually shows up in the sacrament of baptism, whereby we renounce Satan, 
Um, and we promise to live faithfully, as the prayer book says, um, as a member of God's church. Um, we renounce sin and at the same time need to be about the work of accepting God's will um, and asking for his grace to live in accordance with his will. Um, I've met people through the years who say, you know, I, 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 I scrubbed through my memory and I can't really think of anything I've done terribly wrong. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I feel pretty good about where I am. And I say, so how are you doing about repentance? And they're like, what are you talking about? And, it, and it's just to say, how are you doing turning towards God's will? Because repentance isn't just about turning away from sin. It's about turning towards Christ. Um, and so for the Christian, it's not enough to simply uh, forsake sin. We have, to, we have to turn towards God. We have to turn towards God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to live as he demands. That's all for today. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.